we've been working through, what was that? New every day, yes, made new every day, please Lord. All right, so um, we've been working through what I've called the Mythbuster series and uh, we've been confronting worldviews. So that's, that's a, a tricky, tricky way to say, confronting worldviews. So what is a worldview? Uh, we've got a definition uh, that'll come on the screen. A worldview is a way of looking at the world. It's like a lens that changes, or in this case, the colour of the way you experience life. So it, 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 it's the way you look at your experiences. It's the way that you look at every circumstance that happens in life. And, uh, and there's lots of worldviews. And the, the truth is our world has handed us a worldview. And Christ actually has a different worldview. And so our job as people who have chosen to follow Jesus is to in fact invite the Lord to, sh- to reshape our worldview. So on the first week we talked about uh, just like water and oil don't mix, the, the worldview of heaven doesn't really mix with the worldview of the, of, the, of the world and largely what we need to do is repent of our worldview and I siphoned out the water and poured in more oil to represent that actually the only way, we can't really mix the two together, what we need to do is actually kind of repent of and get rid of the world's worldview and, uh, and pick up the, the one that Jesus would hand us. That is largely written in his word. And so that was week one. Week two, I'm, today I'm going to move rather quickly, okay? And uh, I've, I've got all my notes typed out. And so if I move too quickly and you would actually like to uh, read my notes, I'm happy to email them to you. Uh, week two, we talked about that um, I'm not good enough. I, I'm not a good enough, I'm not good enough to be a Christian, and that was actually a myth and a truth all wrapped into one. And that is because the gospel truth is you're not good enough. Uh, and actually Jesus was the only one who was good enough. And because of what Jesus did, he exchanged his goodness for our lack of goodness. And now we can call ourselves a Christian. And that was what week two was. We were confronting this worldview that I am not good enough to be a Christian. Week three, which was last week, we confronted some of our beliefs and, it, and the, the, the myth I was confronting was, I can customize my Christian beliefs based on what I think is true. So, oh, science is saying this, or, or the, the modern philosophers are saying this, or the TV show I like says this. And so I'll massage the Bible to make it say what they think. And what we talked about last week is, actually, no, that's not Okay. Heaven has a truth, God has a truth, he's communicated it with his word, and actually, as followers of Jesus, we actually believe that that is his absolute truth. The world today has done away with absolute truth, whereas we believe the word of God is is absolutely true. And so we should actually be starting with that, not massaging it to make it say what we want it to say, but actually read it in context, try and uh, do our best to understand it, pray that God will show us what it says, and actually be ready to adjust how we think. So that was last week. This week, I'm, um, I'm, I'm going to get a bit controversial. Is that all right? Every week I say that, you guys love it and you thank me for it. So I'm like, all right, these guys love being offended. Um, it's not my heart to offend anyone. But what I want to... Sh- today, this truth, I have found it as one of the most important things for me to understand. 
in my own walk, as I try and walk out this Christian life, this that I'm going to talk about today has probably been the most freeing thing to understand. And I remember my Theo professor in, in these first-year Bible college students, he says something that's so offensive. We're like, are you serious? How can you even call yourself a Christian? And he was the professor. As it turns out, uh, we needed to shift a little bit in our thinking uh, to actually agree with what the Bible said. So here we go. The, the myth that I would like to propose we discuss today uh, is that everything happens, everything that happens is God's will and God's design. Everything that happens is because God willed it and he in fact designed it that way. This is a really popular one. So today, this is actually a Christian belief that we're going to confront And what I'm going to do is unpack some history for us uh, and then then turn to the Bible. Are you ready? Lord, please, uh, I don't know, turn my voice off and turn yours on. Lord, help me get out of your way. Uh, Lord, I pray that you will explain yourself today. I don't assume that my opinions are the truth. We've just finished saying that that's not the way to approach life, living after you. Lord, help us to understand why we think what we think. Help us understand what your word says and help us be humble enough to move towards you rather than move away from you in how we think and what we believe and how we live out this Christian life. Help us. Lord, we can't do it on our own. It's a dumb thought that we ever could. So help us, Lord. Speak to us today and speak. Put your words in my mouth today, I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Truth be told, I've actually been a bit nervous about this one. Because this one is truly a controversial one. Um, But like I said, for me, it was actually really freeing. And and, and an example I could share with you is uh, in in our lives. So Sean and I... We actually had a, uh, a pregnancy before Daniel. So Daniel's my oldest, um, but we had a pregnancy and um, we lost it to miscarriage at about the, at, right at the end of the first trimester. And I had made the mistake because I'm a, ah, I knew a lot of people and I was very excited and I made the mistake of telling everyone, even to the point where we'd run um, massive playgroup at our church. I was the kids pastor and I would carry um, lime in my pocket because that was, that was how big my baby was. <laughs> and then, I don't know why we lost it, but we lost it. And one day I look forward to meeting him. I say it to him, because Sean actually had a dream that night, that Jesus was holding a baby wrapped in blue. And so we've named him, his name is Joshua, and, uh, and um, I look forward to meeting him one day. But... That was a really hard moment where you're, you're asking lots of hard questions of God. Why did this happen? And I had some really well-meaning Christians who have been Christians longer than I've been alive. And they said some horrible things. Have you ever wanted to punch? <laughs> oh, and that, that would say things like, oh, you know, 
God must have wanted your baby more than you did. (laughs) And stuff like that. Because they were committed to this thought that everything that happens is God's will and God's design. And this is quite in Christianity. And so what I want to do today is walk a little bit through history and so we can actually find out where it came from uh, and then go back to the Bible. Okay. If you do get my notes, you'll notice the tears weren't scheduled. <laughs> what is will? That's the first thing we need to ask. What, it, well, what do we mean by this thing called will? What is God's will? What's our will? So I, I, I googled a definition here, and it's quite simply the power in choosing one's own actions. The power in choosing one's own actions. So God has a will, and his power to choose his own actions is, like, ridiculous, like his... You know, he's powerful, more powerful than we could ever imagine. Okay, but he also gave us a free will. And so what we're going to talk about today is, how does that work? And it gets even more confusing when we use the word all-powerful. Omnipotent is, uh, is the Greek word, is the, that language that, that came out of Greek philosophy that we like to use. Omnipotent, all-powerful. And so if God has a will and he's all-powerful, then how does this work? Does, do I even have a will? And so the extreme of this is quite simply, which we'll unpack a little bit. The extreme of this is, no, no, God's all-powerful. That means he's choosing everything that happens, all the good things that happen and all the bad things that happen. That means God chose to kill my baby. Does that make sense? And if that's completely true, then we kind of don't really have a will, or at least not a free one. All we're doing is really going through the motions. God already knows what we're going to do, or God's already preordained it. So, um, and I imagine this is quite familiar to you, because in Christianity, we've got some who believe the, the very extreme of this, And the extreme of this would be that God actually causes all the good things to happen and he causes all the bad things to happen in this world. Now, a lot of people, you know, when you read the Bible and as you mature, you're like, oh, I'm not sure I buy that completely. And so there's actually this whole spectrum of people who believe, oh, you know, oh, God's absolutely powerful. Yeah, no worries. He's he's in control. He's, He's got a will. He's got a plan. But at the same time, my will works in there somehow. And we like to use the word mystery for anything that we can't explain. And so actually most of us don't sit at the extreme end. Most of us are in this confusing middle spaghetti part where our will and God's will kind of figures it out. And uh, and who knows, maybe that's exactly how it happened. But what I want to do today is, uh, yeah, like I said, we're going to start as a walk through Greek philosophy history. So there's the definition of omnipotent if... uh, if, if you, you want to read it. But I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to move, like I said, I'm going to move rather quickly. And so we're going to start 500 years before Jesus. Okay? And you need to hear that. 500 years before Jesus walked the earth uh, is where we start. So the Greek world was the most influential kind of world of the time, especially as time progressed. So 500 years before Jesus, the Greek world actually believed in many gods. They believed in a multitude of gods. Some of them, Zeus, Hera, Apollos, Athena, uh, and, and there's more. 
not to be confused with the Norse gods, which is very similar, which is what all the Marvel movies are based on. Uh, you know, the guys like Thor and all those guys. So it's very similar to that, in that, because uh, they both believed that the gods would visit the world and, and, and impact the world and do stuff in the world. They would influence the world. Now, over the next 200 years, from like 500 BC to 300 BC, um, philosopher, Greek philosophers started to question this idea of a multitude of gods. And one of those big players was a guy named Socrates. Now, Socrates lived 469 to 399, and he started challenging the idea of many gods to the point where they put him to death for influencing the youth of the day. Like, his, uh, I found that fascinating. So Socrates is, um, now like I said, I'm going to move quick. So, but he was, he was put to death for leading the youth astray. Now one of those youth was a guy named Plato. You heard of Plato? So Plato lived 427 to 347 BC, and he followed Socrates' teachings. Now he started, he started this thing called a dualistic worldview. And that is heaven is out there somewhere, up somewhere, and, and earth is, is down here. And, and he developed it a little bit. Um, and his idea that heaven was perfect, and it was, uh, it was actually come from a mathematical place. For him, he studied mathematics and then came up with this idea. And his idea was heaven is just a world of thoughts and ideals, it was, an, it was a place of ideal forms. The example he liked to use was there was a, the perfect triangle exists in that heavenly realm. And every triangle on the earth is just a, 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 a mere imperfect copy of that. He really believed that heaven was this, one, this perfect place. And the natural world is temporary, imperfect, and basically unimportant. Okay? So he's the one who kind of really introduced these thoughts. Now, someone who built on his thoughts was actually his direct disciple was Aristotle. Again, you've probably heard these names. Now, Aristotle, he added this concept of timelessness to heaven. So now heaven is this place of ideal forms. It's perfect, and it's timeless, and that he added this label to, I'll refer to it as God. He doesn't necessarily call it God, but he calls it the immovable mover. He, so his reference to this one creator, and he called him, I'll call him, I'll, I'll say him because it's easier, uh, the immovable mover. That means he is immovable. Nothing can push against him, but he pushes on everything else. So that was uh, Aristotle's development of uh, Socrates and Plato's ideas. And he actually, along with some other philosophers of his day, um, but he was the main name there, he actually created this other list of, of things which you'll actually, you, you'll probably recognize. So Aristotle penned these terms, immutable. Immutable means he never changes. Impassable means that nothing affects him. He's too big. There's nothing that like, his creation can do to impact him at all. Impassable. Perfect. You understand that word. Omnipotent. He wrote that. Omnipotent means all-powerful. Omniscient means all-knowing. Omnipresent means he's present everywhere. Self-sufficient means he doesn't need or desire anything. Certainly not from his creation. 
Now, these ideas actually largely saturated the, the, the known world because there was this other thing happening at the same time in the political realm. And now we, we called it, they called it the Hellenization of the world. Now, I don't know if that's a common, I don't know if that's a common um, name for you, but over 400 to 200 BC, the Hellenization of the world. So it largely started with Alexander the Great, but there's a lot of the leaders of the, of the Greek world. And basically what they did is they conquered the known world um, and becoming the biggest kind of empire uh, of the world. And they had this strategy where they would, when they conquered a nation, they would do more than simply defeat them. They would actually, like, eradicate their culture. They would, like, eradicate their culture. So their politics, their art, their literature, even their language, even the memory of their local history, uh, they went in and their intention was to wipe it out. So... The language of Greece, the Greek language, actually became the primary language in politics, in business, in written world, even to the point where some Jews actually forgot their language. Uh, so the Hebrew, the Hebrew language, the Jewish people, because they were one of the nations that were conquered, they actually, uh, some of them actually forgot how to speak Hebrew, which actually meant that they wanted the scriptures in their now language, and so the Septuagint was written. So the Septuagint is the Old Testament written in Greek, in the Greek language. And here's something interesting as I researched it. I discovered that they intentionally interpreted uh, the ideas from the Hebrew Bible into Greek using Greek philosophical language and ideals and ideas. Which that makes sense, right? When you're translating something into English, you want it to be something that they understand. But and so I'm not saying that's a bad thing, but, but even then, even, when, even in the Septuagint, these Greek ideas started to appear in the Hebrew Bible, which wasn't necessarily there in the beginning. And the last uh, philosopher I want to mention, this guy is actually after Jesus. So he lived 205, 270 AD, and his name was Plotinus. Now, Plotinus... Now, obviously, by then, the Christianity was becoming a thing. But Plotinus actually really enjoyed the writings of Plato. And he re, kind of reworked uh, Plato and his writings into something called Neoplatonism. Now, he's the, Plotinus is the one who, who uh, I suppose, gave a title to Plato's writing. Um, similar to the Immovable Mover, he called him the One. He just called the, the god of, of Plato, he called him the one. And he added some extra attributes to the one. And he said, the one is so perfect, so incredibly perfect, so incredibly true, so incredibly beautiful. He's more radiant and more brilliant than the sun. Okay, than the S-U-N, the sun. So the, the radiance, the brilliance that, that, that emanates from God was so pure that no human could ever approach God. Uh, he actually added these words transcendent, which means completely independent or removed from the natural world. Holy other. Now that's holy with a W. Not holy the way we say holy, holy, holy. Holy as in completely. Completely other, W-H-O-L-L-Y. 
completely different. The one was completely separate, completely different from anything he's created. He's unknowable and he's incomprehensible. So some of these traits you're actually going to recognize because we still use a lot of this language today. Now I'm going to explain why now. Now the early church, so that existed from the ascension of Jesus and let's say for the next 300, 400 years after is when this happened. Now, the, the early Christians did a really fantastic job in partnership with God, empowered by the Holy Spirit, and they, act, they were being persecuted. That's when they were being thrown to the lions and, and you know, um, and they were being persecuted and pursued and killed and, and etc. Uh, but 50% of the Roman Empire became Christians, even in that persecuted time. Isn't that incredible? God is, God is so good. At, to the point where there was this edict at, uh, at, the, at Milan, 313 AD, where they actually finally made Christianity legal. Because they were like, okay, this is, this is getting much. And at a later point, Constantine actually um, named Christianity as the religion for the Roman Empire. And that's when everything shifted. Um, but before then, or kind of in that same area, but before that it became uh, legal, uh, there was some, I'll call them Christian philosophers. They were still Greek, and they were, and they were Christian, and they were trying their best to synchronise the intellectual thought of the day, which, surprise, surprise, was Greek thinking. So the Greek thinking was what all the intellectuals thought was, was true, was right, and these Christians were like, okay, we also know that this Christianity is true, but because we're Greek, we also think that the Greek worldview is true. And they did their best to synchronize the Greek world and the Christian world. And they, they really worked hard to try and get it all to work together. So there's some guys, Philo from Alexandra. He, he actively tried to merge Yahweh, the God of the Hebrew Bible, with Aristotle's immovable mover. That's what he's known for. Justin Martyr, um, who that's actually where we get the name martyred, martyrdom from. Um, so he really admired Socrates and Plato and thought that, that they, borrow, they must have borrowed uh, their information from Moses and from the Old Testament because he's like, wow, this sounds so right. It sounds so, so true. They must have, he must have borrowed it from the Hebrews. Clement of Alexandra. Uh, he, he regarded Greek philosophy as a gift from God, preparing the world for Christianity. Okay? Uh, Origen, uh, he spent a lot of time reconciling the Greek philosophy and Christian thinking together. Um, so there's a lot of theologians actually doing this try and work of synchronizing the Greek thinking uh, with the Bible, with Christianity. Uh, not all of them. There was this guy named Tertullian, uh, who, if you know anything about history, you may have heard that name. He actually thought that the Greek philosophers were foolish delusions from the pagan world. Um, you know, so it wasn't everyone. You know, some, some of the guys were bucking against this. But, uh, but then there was this guy, that, he's probably the most influential and probably the name that you know if you haven't known the other ones. His name is Augustine. So he lived 354 to 430 A.D., and Augustine is the one who is largely accredited 
to synchronizing this Greek thinking into Christianity. Okay, So he did a lot of work into this. Uh, a little bit of history on him. His mum was a Christian, uh, but as a teenager, he actually turned to something called Manichaeism, Manichaeism, which was a Babylonian religion. They believed that God created, sorry, there was one God who created everything good and a different God who created everything evil. So it's very, very dualistic. Um, at 29 years old, he, t- he, he t- studied Plotinus's teachings. So Plotinus is the one who talked about the one uh, and, you know, that, tra- that wonderfully radiant, perfect God. Um, and here's something, uh, I've just highlighted this. Apparently, Augustine was quite unimpressed with the God that he read in the Bible. Augustine was unimpressed with the God of the Bible. And the reason is because he, he saw, as you read these stories, uh, especially in the Old Testament, um, it looked like that God changed his mind sometimes. And he didn't like that. He didn't like a God that changed his mind. He didn't like that God had emotions. You know, that he'd get angry or that he'd be pleased. Um, so he didn't like that. It didn't really fit his worldview. Um, so Augustine was a key player in, in developing... Actually, sorry, before that, there was this guy... And he wasn't totally sold on this, on this Christian thing. He really liked Plotinus' stuff. But then there was this bishop, the bishop um, named Ambrose, the bishop of, bishop of Milan. Now, he uh, explained away some of these uh, things that Augustine didn't like, the emotions and God changing his mind... And he described them as what's called anthropomorphisms, which is a big word to simply say human traits, we change our mind, we feel emotions, and you put them on God. So he simply said, oh, look, any time in the Bible where, it, where God looks like he's not perfect and transcendent and radiant and, and all that good stuff, uh, they're simply anthropomorphisms, and don't worry about them, basically. Uh, Augustine is, is really the father of classical theology. Okay, so classical theology kind of came up. So remember, he's, uh, you know, around that three, four hundred years after Christ. And classical theology is like the father. Uh, so some thousand years later, uh, a guy named Martin Luther and John Calvin. So they lived in the 14, 1500s. Uh, that it's on the screen. And so Martin Luther is the one who broke away from the Catholic Church and he started the, 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 um, the Protestant Church accidentally. I don't, it wasn't his intention. I think his intentions were really great. Um, he wanted to bring correction to the current church, not to start a separate church. Um, and he, he's the father of what we call Lutheran theology. And John Calvin, who followed him, he's the one who developed it a bit further and he's the father of Reformed theology, which is often, uh, another word for that might be systematic theology. Oh. Sorry, I know if you love history, you're probably sitting on the edge of your chair and everyone else is potentially falling asleep. Um, so now's the point to wake up. All right. So systematic theology. Sorry, John Calvin. Uh, systematic theology is simply, if this is true, then this is true and this is true. And it all kind of comes back to that first, if this is true. Now, that's what you systematically develop a theology. 
Now, John Calvin is the one who basically is responsible. If God is all-powerful, if God is omnipotent, then he's in control of everything. And if he's in control of everything, then everything that happens, happens by God's will and by God's design. Have you followed me? That was a lot of info. That's, but that's how it's so evident in Christian theology, right? In, in, in Christianity as well. Because God is all-powerful, that means he's in control of everything. That means everything that happens is his design and by his will. So I explain all of that to, say, to ask you this. What if those Greek philosophers that lived hundreds of years before Jesus weren't exactly right about everything? What if all of their assumptions about who this God was isn't spot on? Now, please don't hear me saying that all of this stuff that so many of our Christianity's lives are built upon, uh, I'm not saying it's all wrong. I'm not saying that. All I'm saying, all I'm giving us permission to do is effectively understand that history and the heritage of some of these ideas and to not let them colour in how you read the Bible. We need to allow the Bible to inform our doctrines, not our doctrines inform what the Bible says. Okay? So please don't go away with your faith in, sh- in chat- shatters. In, in, uh, I'm not sh- trying to shatter your faith. I'm actually trying to open your mind up uh, simply through understanding a little bit of history. Classical theology... Now, this, will be, this should be familiar to you. Classical theology and Reformed theology... So Augustine and Calvin and Martin Luther, this is their list of doctrines. Timeless, immutable, impassable, perfect, omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent, self-sufficient, transcendent, wholly other, incomprehensible and unknowable. Obviously, they didn't come up with them. What they've done is they started with that Greek philosophy and they did the work of integrating it with the Bible, with their understanding of the Bible. Imagine for a moment if we could actually kind of make our mind a blank slate and actually just allow the Bible to colour in what we think. Now, I know we can't do that. And the truth is, even today, we actually think very Greek. A lot of the things that they valued, we still value. Uh, and we definitely have a, a, a more Greek worldview than we don't. What does the Bible say? What does the Bible say? Well, again, I don't have very long, so I'm going to move rather quickly. But if, if we just go back to the Genesis story, we see that God is the creator. And he's ridiculously powerful. I actually like, just so you know, I actually like calling God all-powerful. I'm not opposed to it. Um, Because I think the truth is, he's so ridiculously powerful. In comparison to us, we may as well call him all-powerful. Except he gave us free will. And and he doesn't have the power to change that. Because he's already given it. 
So there's, I suppose, self-imposed limitations. So the God of the Bible is crazy powerful. He, but does he always get his way? I think that's the healthy question as you read the Bible. Does God always get his way? Is he truly the architect behind everything good and everything bad? Is, God, is it God's will and design that 719 million people live on less than $2.15 a day today? Is it by God's will and design that natural disasters destroy towns, on average 60,000 people a year? Is that God's design? Is it God's will and design that almost 27,000 Australians die from preventable causes every year? Is that his idea? Calvin actually suggested that everything is... Because God is all-powerful, he's in control of everything. That means actually it is by his design. The more I learn about um, the way he saw God, the more I... It just doesn't feel right. It doesn't... That's not the God I meet in the Bible. I don't think God is that nasty. So I'm just trying to skip through some stuff. So I suppose I'd like to propose that this is actually a myth based on Greek philosophy. That God is actually, his will and design is, he always gets his way. So as we, let me just give you some highlights from the Bible. In Genesis, God made everything. And I believe it was God's will, his perfect will, as a, as a father who loves, was for us to live in Eden forever. Like, he made this beautiful world, everything worked, his will was done, and I think that was his perfect will for us. Obviously, it didn't work out that way. We chose to disobey, we chose to step away from him, and all of a sudden, basically we said, our will be done, not yours. And we uh, brought the world into a fallen state by sinning and bringing sin into the world. I think God's perfect will was for us to live in perfection. Interesting that that's the promise of heaven, is that perfect place where his will is done. But I don't think God got his way there. I think he knew it was going to happen. I'm not suggesting he didn't know. In fact, I'd go so far as to say, oh, they're very likely to sin. Uh, And I'm prepared to pay the price for that. Jesus put up his hand and said, I will cover them. I will cover their sin. I'll die for them. Before he even made us. Like that is a beautiful, a beautiful thing. The world is in a fallen state because of our choices, not because of God's. Even when we get to natural disasters, um, the, the, natural, the way I read the Bible, natural disasters didn't happen before the flood. It was actually the flood that ruined the, the environment. It was when all, the, te- all the, the water came out of the earth and the tectonic plates started to move. If you think about all the natural disasters in the world, it's all because of that. Volcanoes, uh, earthquakes, and tidal waves. Tidal waves happen because of earthquakes. Earthquakes happen because of all the tectonic plates are moving. And they're still moving today. They were violently moving back then. Mountains were made, you know, because of a volcano eruption. And, and even the Ice Age happened because of all that. Like, that's all scientific stuff that you can learn more about. 
But basically what I'm saying is the, God, the, the world that God made was beautiful. It was, it was good, he said. That was his will for us to live in a good world. But we ruined it with our sin, even to the point where natural disasters are actually a, uh, because of sin, because the whole reason the world flooded was because of our sin. It was a penalty of our sin. You might be asking, well, why did God even put the tree in the garden to give us that opportunity? Well, quite clearly, part of the gift of having sons and daughters, God wanted sons and daughters, and sons and daughters have a choice. You can't force uh, people to love you. He wanted a real relationship, so they had to have a real choice. Simple as that. God doesn't always get his way. If you look through the rest of Israel's history, it's, um, you know, there's this beautiful dance between, oh, they, they are in line with God and they get blessed and then they disobey and they come out of line with God. But God made this promise to them. Right back in Abraham, before the, the, the people were even made, God made this promise to them. And you can read it in Genesis 17.7. It'll be on the screen. I will establish my covenant between me and you. This, he's talking to Abraham, by the way. God is speaking to Abraham. He said, I'll make my covenant between me and you in your offspring and uh, uh, after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. God committed, look, I'm choosing you. You are my chosen people. I will be your God and I invite you to be my people. And you look all the way through history. God doesn't always get his way. He, he, he led his people out of slavery in, in, in Exodus, he, he brought the Israelites out of slavery. He took them to the promised land. And he said, okay, this is the land I'm giving you. Now go and take it. And by democratic vote, they went, no way, Jose. Those people are too scary. I'm not going in. And uh, that was one of those emotional moments for God where he wanted to kill them all. Um, <laughs> but, uh, you know, between he and Moses, they sorted it out. And, and, it, and, and God said, okay, that whole generation, none of them, None of that generation can go in. I'm going to take the kids in. So everyone 20 and under, uh, basically they had to wait for everyone 20 and, or 21 and over to pass away. And then Joshua took the new generation into the land. And again, all the way through history, when they were walking in step with God, they were blessed. When they were doing things God's way, they were blessed. When they were stepping outside of God's will, and worshipping the other gods and doing all that other crazy stuff they did, um, they were cursed. God's will. God, uh, my theological professor said it like this, God works in the chaos of our choices to bring about his will. Now, God is super big. He's super powerful. He's super smart. Okay? He's, he's, he's a lot of super stuff. <laughs> but... We still have a free will. So this is my understanding. God works in the chaos of our choices to bring about his will. He still has a will. I'm just, I suppose what I'm saying is, I'm just not saying that all the bad stuff that happens in the world is his fault. I'm saying it's ours. It's because we brought sin into the world. If, if there are bad stuff happening in your life, don't blame God for it. If there's a bad circumstance that happens in your life, look, I'm not saying God can't cause that stuff. Of course he can. He can. 
And the Bible even says some illnesses, not every illness, but some illnesses are because of sin. Absolutely. God is sovereign. The, 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 the definition for sovereign, the real definition for sovereign, is that God can, is powerful enough to do whatever he wants to do whenever he wants to do it. Okay? Absolutely. God is sovereign. John Calvin actually massaged the meaning of sovereign to mean God is in control of everything. But the real definition of sovereign is actually that God's powerful enough and big enough and has the authority to do whatever he wants to do whenever he wants to do it. But that doesn't mean that everything that happens in the world is his, by his will and his design. It was our will that we live in a broken world. It was our will that uh, basically natural disasters happen because of our sin. Now, I've got this really cool object lesson to show you, and, uh, and, and it should be a bit of fun. And then we'll wrap up. Now, I hid my cross back here. Okay. Now, I'm going to need a little bit of help. So, Jeremy, can... Whoops. Ah... Yeah, bring a vacuum cleaner. Um, I truly thought that was going to be a good solution. All right. Here, just hold that. <laughs> All right. He's got the power. All right. This is, this is Bob. He represents humanity. Now, this is like us doing things our own way. All right. We don't really go much. Uh, and you can. You can do things your own way. But when we step into God's will, things change. So can you hold this for us? Maybe, can you kneel down? I'm going to have to vacuum anyway, so all right. Guys, when we step into God's will, that's when things are blessed. That's when things work. We need to align our will with what God wants to do. That's how God's will works. Now, I'm not saying that nothing bad will ever happen. I'm just saying that when you step into God's will, that's when you can really go places. Watch this. Hey, Seth, watch this. Did you see that? I'll say it again. If you want God to take you places in your life, you just need to add Jesus. <laughs> and I'm not saying that everything will work from then on. That's not his promise. His promise is to be with us, to never leave us nor forsake us. Let me see if I can shoot it out to you. <laughs> Great, thank you. Oh, thanks, bro. Father God... I just thank you. I know for me, I thank you for this revelation. And I don't know if we've had enough time or I've spoken with enough clarity to explain it well. So Lord, I just really pray that you'll fill in the gaps. But Lord, I know that you are crazy powerful and that you are crazy in love with us and that you desire your will to be done in our lives just like a good father wants good things in his kid's life. I can't control what my kids do in every moment of every day. 
And there's obviously things that happen because of their choices. There is consequences to every choice. But God, I just thank you that you are big enough and you are powerful enough to work in the chaos of my choices to bring about good things. God, we love you and we just want to serve you with our lives in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, If you don't mind, I actually forgot to read you a key scripture. And you can study this. Um, Romans 8.28 For we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him. Who have been called according to his purpose. There's other versions that say something more along the lines of God works, God works all things together for good. And I was reading that in my, my ESV and there was a note. It said, oh, it actually also could mean this. And this is how the NIV has translated it. We know that in all things, God works together for the good. That means no matter what's happening, good or bad, God can insert his influence and he can work things for good. And just notice, it's not for everyone. It specifically says, for those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. And that's what I mean by when you bring yourself in line with God and invite him and pray, let your kingdom come, let your will be done in my life. That's when he's got permission in your life to to move around the furniture in your life, but also to take you places that you never dreamed you could go. Well, I've already closed in prayer, so let me close there. And uh, if you, like I said, if you want my notes uh, or a copy of the slides... Uh, I'm happy to send them to you. Join us for coffee.